Good morning, everybody. Um, like Pastor John said, we're going to be looking in Ephesians 3, um, continuing our study of Ephesians. And I actually did slides today, so I got like papers galore to try and sort through and make sure I get them all right. So hopefully I keep it all straight. Let's pray for just a second here and, and uh, before we get into it. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for this time together as a body. Thank you for your church. I thank you for your word. Lord, I just ask that um, you would be present in this, uh, in this reading of your word and that you would bring to us um, whatever message you want us to hear. Um, thank you for everything you've done for us and for Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross. Um, we love you. Amen. All right. So when I looked at the initial preaching schedule that Pastor Preston handed out to all the deacons who are participating in, um, in we call it, I guess we're calling it like the preaching team. It's not a real name, but that's what it is. Um, I looked at the schedule and I saw this passage and I saw the passage later on in chapter six about slavery and I just thought, thanks Preston for like these difficult things to deal with. Because this passage in Ephesians, Paul's been writing this letter, he's been, has this stream of thought and then all of a sudden, he pops over here in chapter 3, and it's like, oh, so let's have a side conversation. So a lot of times, if you see people preach through Ephesians, they'll just kind of like skip over it. And in fact, one of the commentary things we've been working with um, was a thing from the Gospel Coalition, where they have just a kind of high-level overview of all these um, uh, books of the Bible. And when it got to this section... Um, it was just like, yeah, Paul's just encouraging the Ephesians, and then it just like moved on. I was like, no, there's so much more to it than this, and, it, it, and everyone just seems to kind of skip over it when they do these commentaries. So I was a little frustrated when I got this um, passage because it's kind of hard, um, but I hope that we can get something good out of it. So I'm just going to read it all, and then we'll take it apart. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to other people in other generations, as it is now revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace, that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavens. This is in accordance to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. All right, so we start in verse 1, and he says, For this reason, at any time anyone in the Bible says, For this reason, it's, it's the same thing as we used to do with the therefore. You see what it's there for. So what reason? We have to look back at last week when um, Brent Nesseth was preaching, and he was talking about, the unity that we have with God, the unity that we have with um, other believers, the unity we have um, with, uh, with Israel and the Jewish people and how we've been reconciled with God. 
So he's continuing off of that thread from last week. If you don't remember it, you can always go listen to it again um, online. Um, So he says, for that reason, for the reason of unity and reconciliation, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Who is he a prisoner of? This is a weird one because you think, well, he's in, he's in prison right now. When he's writing the letter of, to, to the Ephesians, he's in prison. And we don't know exactly if Rome has him right now or if it's the Jewish authorities that have him right now. But we know it's somewhere along the line there he was in prison. Um, and what was he in prison for? He was in prison for sharing the gospel, for preaching the truth of God's word, for preaching what we'll soon see, the mystery of Christ. But he says that he's, in pris- he's a prisoner of Christ. He's not a prisoner of Rome, in his view. He's not a prisoner of the Sanhedrin, in his view. Those earthly powers do not have the authority to imprison him, but Christ does. He is imprisoned to the message of Christ, because of Christ. He continues, and he says, You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. And we look at that word, Administration. Um, your translation may have something different, may say like stewardship or something like that. But that word in the Greek is oikonomia, which means the administration of a plan, the carrying out of a plan. So Paul is not just, um, he's, at, he's saying you've, you may have heard about this plan, that God is working out this plan that, of, of grace that he has given to me for you Gentiles, for you Ephesians. And what is the plan? Well, he's going to talk about it. Verse 3 says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. What is the mystery? Well, what is mystery? So we we think of it in different ways, right? So if you were to think of the word mystery, what is a mystery? Um, I think the game Clue is a good illustration. In In our family, we will get Clue Jr. from the library. And Clue Jr., you're not solving a homicide. You're saying... There's this cake, and someone has eaten a piece of it, and you need to figure out at what time they ate this cake, what did they drink with this cake, and who was it. So you go down the list, right, and you say, well, they didn't have, I found chocolate milk in this room, so they didn't have chocolate milk, and I found, um, uh, you know, uh, it was in the library that I found the, I don't know, water, so they didn't drink water with their cake, and then Colonel Mustard has an alibi for 6 p.m., so it wasn't at 6 p.m., and Miss Scarlet has an alibi for whatever. And then eventually you work out that it was um, Jack's favorite character, Professor Plum, in the study, and he drank lemonade with his cake because he's a monster at 3 p.m. So that's what we think of mystery. It's something that we have all these clues, and we can discover the answer. And that was um, a little bit like the word he was using here. Um, If you were living in Ephesus at this time, you were familiar with all these temples, right? There was... The Temple of Artemis was the biggest one, and you, were, you knew about it. And the Temple of Artemis controlled, like, every aspect of Ephesian life. It was huge. Like, by ancient temple standards, by building standards anywhere, it was big. And commerce was controlled through that. Um, your social life was controlled through that, everything. And the word mystery that he's using is kind of like, um, it's a form that was used by these re- religious cults to talk about, like, their secret initiations, So we think of, like, secret societies that are around today, right? And they have, like, oh, if you want to be a part of this group, that's fine, but you have to go through this thing that we're not going to tell you about at all. Um, I remember in Boy Scouts, um, I was in the Order of the Arrow, which is this, like, it's, they like to say it's the National Honor Society of Scouting. And it's basically, um, if you've been in Scouts long enough, you can join this group, 
and there's a secret handshake, and there's like a secret phrase that you'd have to say to come into these meetings, which are, is silly because all we were doing was like planning more service projects. So it's not like there's nothing really secret about it. Um, but that's this word of mystery he's using. He's using that word to convey an idea that is very different than what we understand as mystery. Because we think it's, it's like clue. You can figure out who ate the cake. You can figure it out based on the clues. But the mystery that is hidden um, in God is not like that. This mystery is something we could have never figured out. This, is, um, this was only made known by revelation to Paul. This isn't something that someone could have put all the clues together and, and known. Um, the God's mystery is Christ's sacrifice for us, that, um, that God forgives us when we are unworthy of that forgiveness. You know, many religions and cultures throughout history have figured out some of the things that we find in Scripture. They've figured out, like, thou shalt not kill. They've, lots of people have figured that one out. They've put the clues together and said, yeah, it's wrong to kill people. Lots of cultures have put the clues together and said, you shouldn't be stealing from each other. Lots of cultures have figured out, yeah, adultery is not good. All these things that God has revealed to us are not mysteries in that way, right? Like, we can fi- people have decided and discovered, shouldn't do those things. But this is completely different. No one was figuring out that the whole time that humans were saying, God, if I give you this sacrifice, if I do this good thing, if I behave in this way, I can come to you. That's how we all operated. We figured the mystery is God. I got to get the clues of doing good things and being nice to people and having the right sacrifices, and I'll get there. I'll find the answer. And God is turning the tables and saying, you would never figure this out. I'm coming to you. That is the mystery of Christ. Colossians 2, let's flip my slide pages along too, talks more about this mystery. And he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may, may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. God's mystery is Christ, the Christ that was sacrificed for us, the Christ that loves us, and the Christ that is raised again. Verses 4 and 5, he starts to more unpack what this mystery is he's talking about. He says, By reading this, you were able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then there's a colon right there, at least in my translation. So he's going to say, here's the mystery I'm talking about. It wasn't revealed to people before, um, but it's going to be revealed right now. And he's about to say it. Um, and some of you may have, like, sons of men in your thing, and that's just an idiom. It means people. So it wasn't revealed to all these people before, and he's, it's coming now. So we asked, well, what is the mystery, Paul? You've been building it up. What is this mystery? Please tell us. And he says, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are co-heirs with Christ in the power of God, that the, um, the inheritance that Christ is to receive, the inheritance... Um, of the people of the promise is also our inheritance. We are one body with all believers, united in purpose with Christ as our head. He says we are partners in the promise, so we have to ask, well, what promise are you talking about? And so we turn to Genesis, go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 12, and God gives a promise to Abraham. And the promise is this, the Lord said to Abram, well, he's Abram still, he wasn't Abraham yet, um, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a big deal for the Ephesians. As Brent was talking about last week, that they are now a part of God's family. They're a part of God's chosen people. Romans 11 talks about um, this tree, this olive tree, and there are some branches that aren't bearing fruit on it, and so they're going to get chopped off, and new branches are going to get grafted on. And so there's this idea of grafting, and Brent is going to put up a picture of this tree. And this tree is important. So grafting, what is it? Grafting is when, so like if you think of an apple tree, if you were to just plant an apple seed in your backyard, it would grow apples, but they would be small and miserable, and you would not like to eat them. So the way you get good apples is you take the branch from a tree that's producing good apples, and you chop it off, and then you take part of the apple tree, and I'm simplifying this, so if you're a horticulturist culturalist, and I'm messing it up, give me a break. Um, so you cut off another branch from the bad apple tree, and then you stick them together and you tie them together, and eventually they will fuse and form into one. And so the branch from the one tree has come to the other one, and it is now tied to the roots and the foundation of the old tree, but producing good fruit. And this tree is the, called the tree of 40 fruit. And you can see there are different colored buds on this tree, and that's because they took one tree and they took 40 different kinds of trees and grafted it all onto here, and it can make 40 different fruits. And I thought this was an interesting illustration for the body of Christ in that we are all very different, but we all have Christ at our core. You can't graft, like, a banana tree onto an apple tree. That doesn't work. These are all trees that are stone fruit, so they all have a pit, right? So peaches, apricots, things like that, all there. And so with Christ as our, as our center and our core, we can all be grafted onto the same tree into God's family. Grafting makes things fruitful. It makes us fruitful. Paul continues in verse 7. He says, I was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by wor the working of his power. Paul's made a servant. That word servant I've highlighted because it's important. He said he's a diakonos. And this isn't like a servant leader. He's not raising himself up saying, I'm serving you. Notice me, I'm important. In our culture, and especially if you've been in business like at all, I remember um, at, when I was working at Zoetis, we had all of our managers went to some training, and then they came back and they had this picture of one was like a guy sitting behind a desk um, pointing one way, and there are all these people pulling it, and they were like, that's just, a, that's just a leader. And then they had one where there was that same guy was pulling the desk with all the other people, and they're like, this is a servant leader manager, and it was this whole thing. But... Paul's not saying you should be a servant leader and you're leading. He's saying, you're just a ser I'm a servant. I'm lowly. I'm not that, I'm not supposed to be lifted up and important. And you say, okay, well, why is, does that matter? Well, Paul's talking about this gift of God's grace that was given to him. And gift and grace are linked in this culture too. There's so much cultural context in these letters, it's hard to, to sometimes understand. But if you were going to give someone a gift in Ephesus in the first century, you were going to look for someone who was worthy of a gift. Um, you were looking for someone who had money or status or they were high class or they were the right ethnic group. You didn't give gifts the way we give, we give gifts. So today we're going to be give, doing um, my nephew's birthday and we're going to be giving him some presents. And I have no expectation that he's going to give me a gift in return because I gave him a gift in this like, never-ending cycle of gift giving. But that was the expectation in Ephesus, that I'm not going to give someone a gift who's not going to be able to repay me for that gift. I'm going to give you a gift so that maybe in a few years I'm falling on hard times. You will say, oh, I remember when you were so generous to me, so now I'm going to give a gift to you to help you out. 
it would be unwise for me to give a gift to someone who could not give me a gift back in return. It would not be the right thing to do. But Paul is emphasizing, I'm a servant of the gospel. I'm a slave. I'm the lowest of the low, and God is still giving me this gift, which would make us wonder, is God really wise? Is that the right thing to do? Should this be happening? In verse 8, he continues, and he says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. He's reemphasizing, was he worthy? No. He was the least of the saints. He was the lowest of the apostles. If you're reading out of the NIV, it might say he was less than the least. Paul had spent a long time roaming around the, the Middle East looking for Christians so that he could persecute them and kill them. He, while, the, while the apostles were hiding and trying to spread the gospel and they were afraid for their lives, Paul was the one making them afraid for their lives. So he's saying, I'm not worthy of this gift that God has given me. And he's still done it. This is part of the mystery. He was given, um, he was unworthy, but it was still given to tell the Gentiles the incredible news about adoption into God's family to be a part of God's people. Verse 9, he says, And to shed light for all about the administration of God's mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. So, like I said, this was not a mystery we could have figured out. This wasn't clue. This was hidden by God and hidden in God. This was God's plan for the reuniting of all things with himself. Pastor Preston talked about this in the first week of Ephesians, that the gospel is, yes, about our individual relationship with Christ, but it is about so much more, that all creation has fallen and all creation will be reunited with him. All things will be brought back into right relationship with, with Christ. And this is all through God's plan that was hidden in himself. In, him, in his being, he knew this was going to happen. Verse, nine and ten, or verse 10 and 11 are going to talk more about the wisdom and the mystery and what is happening here. Verse 10, it says, This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So the word for wisdom here that um, he's talking about, this multifaceted wisdom. Wisdom in the Greek here is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. This is a unique and special thing that Paul is talking about. And our wisdom is, your, your uh, translations may say manifold, multifaceted, but the bottom line is that if you were to translate it directly into English, it would mean brilliant multicolored. So you can think of like light or like a rainbow and like it's brilliance. Um, you think of my, my wife's a huge Lord of the Rings person, um, like big time. She'll correct people about things sometimes if they get the wrong thing. Um, but in Lord of the Rings, there's Gandalf. He's the wizard. He helps out um, Frodo and Bilbo and, and all the fellowship. And he starts off as Gandalf the Grey. And you see him, and he's wearing all gray cloaks. And he's cool looking. He has a sweet stick, but he is gray. And he comes back, and he is Gandalf the White. And in the movies, you see... Um, is it Helm's Deep, Katie? Is it Helm's Deep when he shows back? Okay, see? Um, so, so they're at the Battle of Helm's Deep, and the orcs, these monsters, are trying to get into this, this castle, basically, and there's humans in there, and they're trying to protect um, the fellowship and the ring, and it looks like all hope is lost, and then this bright light comes over this hill, and it's Gandalf, who's now Gandalf the White, and he's on this white horse, and he's leading the riders of Rohan to come back in and save, and save this place, and that's the image that came into my head that 
the, this mystery, this um, wisdom of God is this bright, shining thing that comes out of the darkness. And it could also be that Paul is making um, a statement when he's saying it's multicolored because he had just talked about ethnic unity and two different ethnic groups coming together, being joined as one. So that could be in there too. But um, it is this brilliant, bright wisdom that is completely new for all people. And it's being made known to the rulers um, and authorities in the heavens. And a lot of times when it talks about rulers and authorities in the Bible, we think kings, emperors, magistrates, you know, the people that we think of like government authorities. But these are the ones in the heavens. So who the heck is he talking about? Well, he's already mentioned in um, two... In the first two verses of chapter 2, he said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And who is he talking about there? He's talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan. So who are these rulers and authorities? He's talking about the angels. All of them, that's the angels and the demons who are still angels, but they're fallen angels. Encompasses all of them. He's talking about all of these these entities that we sometimes think, well, the angels are with God, so like they are seeing everything the way God sees things, kind of, and so maybe they'd know about his plan to send Jesus before we did. This is all being brand new for them, too, and it's through the church that this is being revealed to them. He's picking the lowly, persecuted, poor outsiders, the church, to do this, um, I was trying to think about how to, what, how to think about this, too. And the only thing I could think about was um, the NFL draft. So um, the NFL draft just happened a couple weeks ago. And the way this works, if, you, if you're not a sports person, there are 32 teams in the NFL. Each one gets a pick. And there are seven rounds. The worst team in the league starts. So my poor Lions have had plenty of experience being the number one pick. And they pick all the way down to 32. And then round two happens. And they keep picking. And then it flips, though. So best team picks. It, it's a little complicated, but not that much. Basically, you pick people, right? And there's seven rounds. If you're picked last in the seventh round, the very last player, you're given the title Mr. Irrelevant, which is great to have. I mean, you're the only one with that title, but like, what a title, man. Mr. Irrelevant. And most of the time, they are irrelevant. You'll never see them again. Um, every now and again, someone will show up and do something good, um, but not often. And then you'll hear about people who are draft steals. Oh, we picked this guy. He shouldn't have been there, but we got him, and he was, what a deal he was. And I think of, like, the church, we're a sixth or seventh round pick. Like, yeah, we might make a team, but, like, those guys probably aren't going to do very much in their career. You see people in the first round, the second round, the third round, and you think they're going to be playmakers. We'll see them in the Hall of Fame someday. But a sixth round, a seventh round, nah. You'll make a team for a few years, and then you'll fizzle out. So behind me, you have two players. And for a long time, the line, well, for my whole life, the Lions have been awful. Um, but when I was a kid, they were especially awful, so I had to have a backup team. And my backup team was the Denver Broncos because John Elway's name was John, like me. So I picked them. And they were good. And so that guy, number 30, is Terrell Davis, one of my childhood heroes. Terrell Davis was an MVP. He had um, a 2,000 rushing yard season, which is a lot. Um, he had two Super Bowl rings. He was the Super Bowl MVP. He was elected to the Pro Bowl. He was an All-Pro four times. And he is in the NFL Hall of Fame. Terrell Davis was a six-round pick. He should not have been this good. And then we all know, even if you don't like sports, that guy over there. And uh, sorry, David, I didn't put him in Tampa Bay. 
colors because that's less recognizable. But that's Tom Brady. And um, Tom Brady has seven Super Bowl rings. And I don't really need to say more about that because that's more than a lot of teams, certainly more than my beloved Lions, um, who have zero. Um, but these got, he was picked in the sixth round too. And if you ever look at his like draft combine picture, they have him like, they always make him be shirtless or whatever, and he's a pudgy, soft looking dude. Like he's not going to be anything. Greatest quarterback that's ever played the game. And this is how I think about the church in this that you wouldn't, it is not conventional wisdom to think, oh yeah, that's my backup team. Here's their answer. Um, it's not conventional wisdom to think Terrell Davis, six round pick, is going to be one of the greatest running backs to ever play the game. It's not conventional wisdom to think Tom Brady, soft, pudgy boy, six-round pick, is going to be lighting teams up for like 20 years and have seven Super Bowl rings and be the greatest quarterback that's ever played. This is not conventional wisdom. In the same way, it is not the wisdom of the world to say that God's wisdom is going to be revealed to not just people on earth, but to the rulers and authorities in heaven through the church. The religious minority who's getting fed the lions and lit on fire as human torches and crucified and killed in all kinds of ways, these are not the people that you would pick, right? You'd pick the people who have power and authority and clout, not the lowly, pudgy Tom Brady's of the draft. In verse 11, he continues and says that this is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, that this wisdom is displayed as part of God's plan of salvation. This is all part of God's plan of bringing all things into himself. That the church is the body for pursuing the reconciliation of all things. In verse 12, he says that he's doing this, um, that in him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We have access to God. He's not hidden from us. He's not behind some veil. He's not behind the curtain. He's, um, access, has, access has been given to all. And we have boldness. We don't need to be terrified to approach God. We don't need to, to timidly say, God, you know, I don't know, maybe you could do this. We, we can approach him and say, God, I need your help. I need you in whatever situation it is. I need, God, you're Jehovah Jireh. I need your help supplying for my financial needs. God, you're, the, you're the, the king of kings. I need you to have authority over this thing in my life. We can approach him boldly. In the Old Testament and, um, and in the temple, they had, they had the spot where the altar was, where God's presence rested that was separated out. And there was like the holy place where you'd go and light incense and stuff. And then there's this big curtain. And once a year, guys would go back there and make sacrifices and that was the Holy of Holies, right? And they tie a rope to that guy because if he was killed by God because he was um, approaching God in an unworthy manner, boom, he's dead. They got to drag that body out somehow. And I can't imagine how terrified that guy would have been thinking, did I do every sacrifice right? Did I make sure that my sin offering was done exactly as I'm supposed to do it? Did I make sure that my grain offering was just so, and my love, like, did I make sure that I am clean before God? And everyone says, yeah, 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 you're fine. Go ahead, go ahead, let's go in. I got the rope, don't worry, I'll pull you out. But like, I don't want to be pulled out. Um, and, and I can't imagine how terrifying that would have been. But Paul is saying that you have boldness and confidence, and you can walk to God boldly and confidently and not be afraid 
of all of that stuff. You don't have to worry if you did it all right to come to God. He is there and he is waiting for you to, to, to commune with him. When I study for this stuff, I look at all these different things. I have like three or four Bibles different laid out in front of me, have the computer to compare versions, have different commentaries. And what I thought was interesting, and it sounded a little confusing to me, is that in him we have boldness and competent access through faith in him. And so in the CSB, which is what I'm using, in him is like bookending this verse. What does that mean? There's some significance there. When there's repetition in the Bible, you have to kind of wonder, why, why did he choose those words? And so we compare these different versions and we see that the ESV says, in him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And the CSB, which we're reading out of, I'm reading out of, says, in him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And the NIV says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And the New Living Translation says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And the Greek word for this, this phrase of through faith in him or in him um, means through Christ's faithfulness. And so I kind of really like the NLT, which I normally don't get into because I think it's not the best translation, but because of Christ and our faith in him, so because of what Christ has done, because of Christ's faithfulness on the cross that has bridged the gap that was there, that we were separated from God, the curtain was there, make sure your rope is on, like we, there is a separation there, but Christ bridges the gap, and then through our faith in Jesus, we are brought into relationship with him, and so we can access him. So I really like the way that the NLT puts it. Because of Christ, what he's done, and our faith in him, the relationship we have, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And he wraps up this part, um, this little aside, in verse 13 to the Ephesians, and he says, So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Don't be discouraged over Paul's afflictions. What are his afflictions? Well, he's in prison. Why is this such a big deal, and why would it be so discouraging? So, well, first of all, why is he in prison? Acts chapter 21 goes over this. I'm going to give you a, a very high-level overview. I'm not going to get into it. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem in Acts 21. He brings a bunch of his Greek friends with him, and um, he's seen in the temple, and he, then he's accused of bringing all these Greek people who are not Jews into this area of the temple that was only supposed to be Jewish men, nobody else. So if you were a Gentile and you were in there, you were going to be killed. That was the thing that they did. And the Romans didn't care because they're like, we'd rather have them kill these guys instead of having a huge big problem on our hands. What's a few Gentiles in the grand scheme of things if we can keep our order and our control? So he's accused of this. Um, he, a big scene happens. He gets taken to be beaten um, by, the, by, the, by the Roman authorities. And he's like, hey, you can't beat me. I'm a citizen of Rome. And then there's this trial with the Sanhedrin, and eventually he gets shipped off to Rome because they're trying to figure out, okay, well, who has jurisdiction over this guy? We've got to figure out how we're going to punish him or not. And so if you're an Ephesian, you've been practicing your pagan religion where if I do a good thing for God, whatever God that is, that God is going to do a good thing for me. This is called votive religion, if you're a studier of religion. Um, and so they're seeing this, and they're like, okay, well, Paul is spreading the message of Jesus. He's doing what God wants him to do. He is doing all the things that Jesus is asking him to do, and bad things are happening to him? Why would I follow that God? This votive religion thing was so important to them because Artemis, that's the big temple of, of the place, 
she was not um, a fertility goddess per se, but more like a goddess of um, motherhood and midwife, midwifery, is that the word? Um, so um, of childbirth. Because if you were a woman in the first century and you had a, a baby, there was a pretty good chance you were going to die. Like, this wasn't, like, it would be a terrifying, it's terrifying now when your wife says, the baby's coming and you got to get to the hospital. That's stressful and frantic and terrifying. Um, but imagine it if she said that and you're like, well, let's flip a coin. Let's flip a denarius. She might make it and she might not. Like, this is a big deal. So the vote of religion to them was a matter of life and death. So when Paul is saying, I'm in jail, I've been doing the things that God's commanded me to do, these people coming from this background were thinking, I don't know about this God anymore. So Paul's giving them this explanation to try and encourage them and say, listen, here's all this truth about God, and you need to know all about this. And he's saying that not only is this suffering not like a, a problem in that sense, it doesn't render God obsolete. And he's not saying it's, it's for your glory. He's saying my suffering is your glory. That they are being brought into the mystery of this story. The story is Christ's glory and we get to share in it. It's not for your glory, it is the glory. What does glory mean here? It means an honor or a reputation. And our reputation is based on Christ's dead, risen, and ascendant. And the honor is that we are part of God's family. We're in, we are God's temple. We are God's people. I've been studying a lot out of this book. This is a, a commentary on Ephesians. And I'm a slow reader anyway. I've been trying to read all the way through it. And it's been taking me, it's taken me months. Um, it's only like 400 pages, but that's 400 dense pages. <laughs> um, but I want to read to you um, just a, a part from here. Because I think um, Dr. Lynn Kohick the author of this, she really puts it um, in a way that I think makes sense. So she says on page 225, their reputation is based on Christ who suffered and is raised, and they are raised with Christ, Ephesians 2.6. Their honor is based on, mem on being members of God's family, which is verse 219, being a part of God's temple, 2.22, and having an inheritance secured in the Holy Spirit. Paul's chains bring honor to the Gentiles as his afflictions reveal the gospel truth that Gentiles are sharers in the promise through Christ. The Romans would hardly imprison Paul for preaching about the, a Jewish Messiah to Jews, but his claim about Messiah Jesus, that his death and resurrection are on behalf of all people, strike at the heart of the pagan empire. Before the rulers and authorities in the heavens, these Gentiles in Christ stand as a testimony to God's wisdom. Rome doesn't care if you say to them, we are bringing good news just for the Jews, because they can control that. They can control the Jewish people. They don't care if it's just for the Gauls or the Scythians or the, the Goths in Germany. I don't remember. All these ancient peoples, whatever. They don't care if it's kept there. But that this mystery, that, that this is the grafting in of all peoples into the kingdom of God, that's a problem. Because when you have all people who say, I don't recognize Caesar as my authority. I don't recognize the gospel of Rome, the Pax Romana, as the true gospel. I recognize Christ Jesus, crucified, dead, and ascendant. That's the authority I recognize. That's a problem for Rome. They don't like that. So he's saying, look at this encouragement I have. They all know Rome's not going to do anything if I was bringing you a message that didn't, have, that didn't have any power in it. Rome doesn't care if I bring you a message of happiness and, you know, self-help and you know, manifesting and whatever new age nonsense we deal with today. He doesn't, Rome doesn't care, but they do care when it threatens everything that they have set up. 
So what are the two big takeaways from this? I know there's been a lot. Number one, I think, is encouragement and suffering. That we know that in Christ, for the Christian, there is no pointless suffering. Nothing is pointless. Paul's suffering here, it had a purpose and a reason. Kids, you may be taking a spelling test at school and you think, man, this is suffering and I'm having a hard time remembering how to spell these words. And um, I still forget how to spell those words. So it's okay, but um, you may think, man, this suffering, this test, whatever, this is pointless. Why am I doing this? I'm never going to use algebra. I'm never going to need to know that all three angles of a triangle are 180 degrees. I'm never going to need to know any of that. This is suffering for no reason. Or we think about, you know, all these wars happening in Ukraine, in Sudan, in Yemen. You can, I mean, there's more happening. There's all these conflicts, and, there, and we think, what pointless slaughter for what? For land? For, for, you know, we don't know all the reasons. But this is showing us that all suffering, no matter how small we think it is or how big the scale of it, it is all for the glory of God. Paul's imprisonment was for what? It was for the glory. It was the glory of the, of the Ephesian church. That in all our sufferings, we have an opportunity to draw nearer to God. We have an opportunity to bring glory to God. And we have an opportunity to know God in a deeper way, to be welcomed into the mystery that is Christ. And number two, I think it's the importance of the church. That the church is the starting point for the reconciliation of all of these things. The church is the starting point for the reconciliation of um, Jews and Gentiles, of um, all racial groups. We see a lot of, you know, the, the church is where we will see the gospel worked out and not just revealed to humans, but revealed to all authorities. Church is not just a safe place to come and have some fellowship. Church is the evidence of the new creation, of all things, like I said. So, I mean, you can go down the list of issues of justice issues, of economic disparity issues, of, you know, we, we, ha we have an environment that we are called to care for, too, and that's, all of this should be worked out through the church. It should give us, we should have a hard time thinking about and marveling about how angels and demons are learning this through the church, too, like, this, this whole thing blows my mind, and I was studying this and trying to figure out where I was going to go with it, and then when I got to this conclusion, um, with some help from my boy Tim Keller, sad loss um, with Tim passing away, but this just blew my mind. You know, there's a, some, some data that says like 81% of, of Americans say that you can be a good Christian, whatever that means, and not go to church. That you can be a part of this mystery, but not be a part of this mystery. And so I just want to say, and just like, I think leadership would be on board when I say this. Like, if you aren't, if you think that I'm just going to do this Christian thing alone, I can, I can know Jesus and that's enough and I don't need to be a part of his body, you're wrong. And Paul would look at you and be like, what are you talking about? I'm in chains for this. What are you talking about? You can just not be a part of this. And so, and it's, I don't know, I'm not going to say it's a sin thing. I'm not going to say you're sinning if you're not here, but I will say that like, what are you missing out on? Like, why would you want to not be a part of the body of Christ? Why would you say, here is the mystery of the, re of the revelation of Jesus. Here is the reuniting of all things to God. And I don't, I don't know. It sounds boring. That doesn't make any sense to me. It certainly wouldn't make sense to Paul. And so, you know, I'm glad you guys are here. Keep coming. Keep being a part of the mystery of God. If you're watching on the live stream, I don't know how many of there you are. 
if you don't have like a really solid reason for not being here, I would, I would love you to be here, but maybe it's just a different church. Be a part of the body of Christ, wherever your context is. And maybe someone's listening later. I listened to sermons from 10 years ago. I don't know. If you're listening later, you should be a part of the body of Christ. So when we look at this passage, I hope that we are no longer looking at it as, here's this little flippant aside that Paul said. It was important enough that he wrote it down. And it's, I think, really stinking important. Just to, not just to give us encouragement, because lots of the Bible does that, but to show us, man, the church is so important. The church is such a big deal. And I know it's not perfect. It's made out of sinful people. You know, church hurt is a real thing. Abuse is a real thing. Um, but God wants to reveal the goodness and love and justice and peace and mercy of Christ through this, through what we're doing now. Um, so thank you for being here, and I just I pray that you continue to be here.